TED Audio Collective. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds. Thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magirite is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Hello, everyone. This is After Hours. I'm Felix. I'm Mihir. And I'm Christina. Welcome, Christina Wallace. You're a wonderful colleague of ours from the Entrepreneurial Management Unit at HBS. It's Mm -hmm. great to have you. Thanks for having me. Are those a stack of books I see on your right-hand side of your camera? (laughs) Either books or pizza boxes. I can't quite tell. Exactly. What are those? Man, I wish they were pizza boxes. You're close. They are the boxes that I am sending the books in as I send out reviewer copies and off to influencers to get some buzz going for my book launch. Tell us about the book. It is called The Portfolio Life, How to Future-Proof Your Career, Avoid Burnout, and Build a Life Bigger Than Your Business Card. Mm. And it's a book I wrote to explain what I've done with my career, but also to provide a playbook for, in particular, folks that are coming up in their 20s and 30s who are trying to make sense of how do I build a life, how do I build a career in the face of constant disruption. Mm. What are supposed to be these once-in-a-lifetime events seem to be happening, yes, I don't know, every five to seven years. So <laughs> how do you think about building a life, building a career when industries are being turned upside down, when career paths are not linear anymore. That sounds really wonderful. I could use a little bit of that. Yes, I was going to say. And Christine, did you bring a topic for us to talk about? I thought the face of financing for startups in an era where your bank account might not be accessible in the face of the SVB collapse might be something worth talking about. That sounds great. That sounds really interesting. And Felix, what did you bring? I would like to talk about philanthropy. There's a new class of philanthropists that they think very different about giving, and I'm curious what you make of it. Very good. Two great topics. So, Christina, the failure of SVB and entrepreneurial finance, tell us what's on your mind. Well, as a founder who raised venture capital and now as an educator who teaches our students how to think about funding and resourcing their companies, it really took me by surprise. The collapse of SVB, the moment when all of the other things that we're constantly thinking about as founders and trying to build, like access to your bank account is not one of those things. Not one of those things, yes. (laughs) It's not just about a bank account. SVB filled this incredibly important role in the financing ecosystem for startups 
it wasn't a place that you just parked the money that you raised in a venture capital round. They also provided venture debt. Mm-hmm. They provided personal financing for founders who needed mortgages, where other banks would look at your financial statements and say, like, you're worth a lot on paper, but I don't think I want to lend to you to be able to buy a house. And so they understood what early stage, high growth company building looked like on a financial basis, and they might be gone for good. And I guess my question is, is this something that needs to be replaced, this institution that specializes in this industry? Or are we setting ourselves up for yet another systemic risk by having an institution that specializes in this industry? Mm. One of the things that strikes me as particularly interesting about the story is just how alone they were and how central they were. There must be so many founders who have exactly the kinds of financial issues that you talk about, Christina. Mm -hmm. And then you would think, okay, so many people need mortgages. Lots of people think about some level of debt. There must be dozens and dozens of institutions that serve these people. And then you look around and it's not true. Yeah. And so I think there is a really useful role that banks like SVB can play. But I'm hoping that what we will see and one of the lessons that we will draw from what just happened is that this might well be 10% of your business, maybe 20% of your business, maybe 50% of a business coupled with much more traditional banking. And that, I think, is safer for the bank because now you don't have this issue that at some point in time when startups are doing really, really well and when the tech world is on fire, you get this deluge of deposits and then you don't really know what to do with them because there isn't that much demand. Mm -hmm. And then at other times when the ecosystem is in trouble, now everybody wants to access their deposits. So I think in a better diversified banking model, the role that they served, I actually see as very valuable. So I don't know, I guess I'm coming at it on the other side, I think, Christina, right? Which is that (laughs) I think those are interesting economic needs, both venture debt and personal finance for founders. There are many ways that those things could happen, and they don't need to happen in the context of a bank. And in some ways, I don't know if they really belong in the Mm. context of a bank. So venture debt is an interesting idea. It may have some merit, there was maybe $25, $30 billion of venture debt done in a year, and SVB was a leader in that field. But it's not clear, A, that venture debt is an instrument that makes sense. Because debt is a fixed claim, it's not clear that that's what the capital structure of these kinds of companies should be. Nor is it particularly clear that a bank should be a provider. So Apollo could set up a venture debt fund, or KKR could set up a venture debt fund, Mm -hmm. and they could be providers, or for that matter, a venture capital fund could set up a venture debt fund. That all seems fine, but it doesn't need to be in a bank. And then on the personal founder side, which I think you're right to highlight is also really interesting because they came to rely on SVB for personal mortgages. There, I'm a little bit more concerned because that has a feeling of a little bit of loosey-goosey stuff. You park your corporate (laughs) funds in the bank and then you get a nice juicy mortgage. That isn't that great from many, many perspectives. So should somebody with a lot of highly illiquid wealth, which is very speculative, be getting personal mortgages of that kind. I don't know. I'm a little bit more of the mind that it's not clear to me that we needed it. By the way, that doesn't mean those people didn't need it. They needed it. But like socially, did we need it? Not so clear. And I'm definitely not clear about why it would be sit in a bank as opposed to the many other places where 
it might sit. Mm. Maybe I'm just like, it's all just too soon after Silicon Valley Bank <laughs> <laughs> to be thinking about this. Yeah. Certainly from a founder's perspective, if you say like, why has no one else done this? You should have a really good answer right. of why no right. one else has done this. And if no other bank was going into this space, yeah. maybe that was a sign. But when I think about the personal standpoint, whether it's mortgages or lines of credit or anything like that, you're right. They have wealth that is speculative. But at the same time, for many of these founders, this is their only source of wealth. And unless they take money off the table at certain points in their financings, unless they decide to tap out, they might go 10, 12 years without making right. the type of money that would allow them to provide for a family, to be able to put down roots, to pay for private school or college tuition. So I do believe there has to be some sort of mechanism that gives them liquidity without having to necessarily take money off the table from their company. Mm -hmm. It is an interesting reminder that anyone, whether you're a founder, whether you are someone who lives in sort of the freelance gig economy space, if you don't look like a pretty typical American with a nice, dependable W-2 every year and the tax returns that look the same year after year, a lot of banks don't have a risk model that knows how to deal with that. And it can be really hard. Yeah. So it makes me really interested in how we can come up with other risk models that allow people access to financing that don't look like the typical people that we lend to. And whether that is companies looking to raise debt or whether that is individuals needing a mortgage, I think there's a lot of opportunity for innovation in this space. And maybe one way to think about it is since the startup world and the venture world in particular experiences these waves. So 2021, there's like, oh my God, dream come true. We had more than 600 rounds of financing for companies that were valued in excess of a billion dollars. It was just like, oh my God, everything is on fire. <laughs> and then now, not so long afterwards, we look at the financing landscape and it looks very, very different. Mm -hmm. In particular for startups that are not so young anymore. I think the financing is very difficult. But in general, multiples have collapsed, in particular in software. And so one of the questions then is, what part of the financial system is best able to serve an industry where people have personal needs, but where their environment is actually quite volatile and unstable for all the reasons that we go through these cycles? Mm -hmm. My first instinct is that you don't want the source of financing to be too close to the startup world to begin with because the funds themselves go through these cycles. And so if financing for your startup dries up and then at the same time now it's also impossible to get a mortgage and you worry about the employees in your startup, you don't quite know how to compensate them in a manner that keeps them loyal to your business. So one reason why I like a diversified banking model is that a part of the business might actually be totally okay, it might be less affected by Silicon Valley type cycles. And so that might give you the kind of stability, in particular, if your business venture looks very volatile already, maybe it's particularly important that the rest of your personal finance doesn't go through similar cycles. Yeah. What do you think, Mihir? Is that a good argument? I think it's reasonable. I think the issue that this raises more broadly in banking is... To do these things well, it requires an informational advantage. 
So it is good to be diversified from a business perspective. But the reality is if you want to make good lending decisions, you need to really understand an industry. <laughs> and so part of what Silicon Valley Bank did was deeply understand an industry. I like the idea of many banks catering to this community because then, of course, it broadens out that risk and diversifies that risk. But it also has to come hand in hand with somebody who really deeply understands the industry. And that's part of what the tension is with First Republic and with Silicon Valley Bank, which is they were deeply entrenched in specific industries. And then that was a source of their strength. You had to be informationally smart about those industries. Signature, it was Broadway and landlords. First Republic, it was private equity and professionals and lots of other things. And Silicon Valley, it was startups. So I think there's just this tension between specialization and the informational expertise it creates and that need for diversification. Christine, I'm struck by your comments about these founders on the personal side. There is an element to me that thinks these are the wages of entrepreneurship. This is what it's meant to be an entrepreneur. And so the idea that, wait a second, I have to wait five or 10 years to consume in the way that I thought I was going to consume, that my peers are consuming in more stable jobs, that to me feels like, yeah, that is the bargain. <laughs> now, that sounds horribly unsympathetic, but isn't that kind of the nature of the bargain? Which is, you can't both say, I want this really risky take on my human capital with outsized outcomes in the good states of the world, and then also say, yeah, I want to borrow against it. Mm. It feels like that's a little bit of having your cake and eat it too. You know, you both have observed that other folks didn't come rushing in here. This has just been a place of one person. So when I observe that, it's not as if venture capital or Silicon Valley is short on cash. So if no one else is there, that also makes me wonder if there's a there there. It is a completely fair question about having your cake and eating it too. I think the tension in that argument is, well, then you are limiting entrepreneurship to a set of folks Absolutely that right. can afford to put off being able to cash out for 10 or 12 or 15 years. Absolutely and right. That is going to affect who shows up, who creates, who sees the opportunity, and who benefits from that opportunity. And I don't have a good answer to that. And just to flesh that out, you're, I think you're absolutely right. That has a gendered component to it. It has a class component to it. It's got a whole bunch of components to it. And it has an age component to it as well, right? If you are in your mid-40s and you have a family and you say, I'm going to go start this thing and I see an opportunity and I want to build the future... And we are cutting our salary by 90% and we'll do so through the entire point where my children are growing up and we need to pay for things. Are you going to make that calculus? Uh, maybe not. If we talk about the personal finances of founders, I wonder if we make things a little more complicated than they really are. In particular for startups that are not, say, like after your second or third round of financing. It's not as though we know nothing about you. There are people who have put money on the line in probably more substantial manners. I don't really know how big the homes are that founders buy, but I'm guessing that people who invested in your company, they probably have more money on the line than the bank that forces you, I don't know, to have a 20% down payment or whatever they ask you to do. And then they have an asset for which there's not a perfectly liquid market, but there's a very reasonable market. So in particular for 
bigger things like a home equity loan so that your kids can go to school. Mm -hmm. That doesn't actually strike me as rocket science. And you have a lot of information as the banker. Indeed. But you know who has even more information is the venture capitalists. And maybe they should fund it. A wealth management company could do it. A VC fund can do it. They can make it part of their portfolio. They can do a sidecar deal on this. Those are the people with the real informational. But those are exactly the parts of the industry that go through the same ups and downs that the businesses go up. And That's right. But that would suggest that they know those risks and maybe those risks are outsized and they'd prefer them to be housed somewhere else than bear it themselves. If there were 50 banks rushing in, I just don't see it happening. Do we think that for them all to rush in and to set up offices and to do this in a good way, that's expensive. Maybe Christina and I will start a bank. Who knew? It can be part of your portfolio life. <laughs> I had to get a financial portfolio joke in there somewhere. So you did it. Thank you, Mahir. There's another piece of this story that I think is really interesting, Christina, which is putting aside SVB, if you think there is this harsher environment that's approaching startups and their financial fortunes in the next year, both because of valuations, but also because of the loss of SVB. What do you think you would tell young founders, aside from like splitting your accounts into like $250,000? <laughs> what do you think you would tell young founders about how they should think about their financing choices that you wouldn't have said 12 months ago, let's say? I think two things. Number one, it comes back to the fundamentals. You have to be thinking unit economics, and you have to be thinking what is my informational advantage? What am I building and am I the right person to build it? And how can I build it in such a way that it doesn't have to be necessarily profitable on day one, but you could get to the point of profitability or cash flow positive if necessary. Mm -hmm. That buys you runway. It buys you a lifeline. It buys you mm -hmm. flexibility. Mm -hmm. So I guess two things. One is build a real business. Yes. Yeah. And then number two, at least right now, the easiest round is your first round. Hmm. The first round is about the promise and the potential and the story. You don't have any pesky data getting in the way and multiples that they can be doing on the back of a napkin. Raise as much as you can in that first round and then go execute like the bridge is on fire. Yeah. Because it is. And build in such a way that if you can't get that second round or it takes six or 12 more months to get that second round, you'll be okay. Raise a lot and then be conservative. Interesting. In the end, if we get a crop of new companies that are actually in the business of creating value for customers and for employees and for others, I think we'll be so much better off. And we'll look back to the last 10 years or so as really an aberration that led to not only a lot of failed investment, but also many ideas that people pursued that in the end just did not really make all that much sense to begin with. Hallelujah to both of what you said. I think that is just <laughs> the greatest possible outcome here, which is, and I think you're right, Christina, it's in the next couple of years, there's going to be a lot of sorting the wheat from the chaff. And so that kind of advice, I think, is spot on. And in a way, you know, is a silver lining to all this, as you point out, mm -hmm. Felix. Wonderful. You're growing a business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. 
Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Support for the show comes from Brooks Running. I'm so excited because I have been a runner, gosh, my entire adult life. And for as long as I can remember, I have run with Brooks Running Shoes. Now I'm running with a pair of Ghost 16s from Brooks. Incredibly lightweight shoes that have really soft cushioning. It feels just right when I'm hitting my running trail that's just out behind my house. You now can take your daily run in the better than ever Go 16. You can visit brooksrunning.com to learn more. So Felix, on the topic of Silicon Valley, you want to bring up philanthropy, but it seems like there might be a particular angle that's interesting to you. Yes, it's the most recent changes in philanthropy that I find completely fascinating. If you think about it from a historical perspective, you have a very early model, say, Henry Ford and the Ford Foundation. Hmm. You give away money very late in your life, you establish a foundation, and the idea is really that the foundation can do good in perpetuity. You set it up so that it has a very long life. And many of the foundations that were started by people like Henry Ford, they ended up having very long lives and did a lot of good work. And then I think a first really interesting change happened around the time when Bill and Melinda Gates started their foundation. And it was sort of for lack of a better word, like a hard-nosed business approach to thinking about philanthropy and where money should go. And some kind of accountability that, yes, you wanted to be generous with lots of nonprofit organizations, but also you ask them, what's the return on investment? How much social good do you really do? And I think it led to many practical changes that nonprofit organizations paid much more attention, say, to measuring the quality of the outcomes. And now I think we're in the midst of another generation that has very different ideas. And maybe Mackenzie Scott is one good example. One change is you give money away very early on in your life. She gave away $14 billion in three years. Incredible. Of course, it's not as though you do it in a completely thoughtless fashion, but the emphasis is much more, let me carefully study the organizations that I like. And then once I like what you do, there is an incredible amount of trust. There's not the Bill and Melinda Gates after you spent the money kind of accounting is I picked your organization, I believe in your cause, I believe in the team, and essentially I'm writing a check. And it's really, you know better what to do with the check. And I think there's sort of a related form of giving that I think is built on the philosophy, even giving individual checks, in particular in emerging markets, in markets where people are really poor, There's a lot of research now that says, actually, as an outsider, maybe even as a nonprofit organization that is local, you will never really figure out what is best for people. The best thing you can possibly do is write a check, give people cash, and they will figure out what's best for their family. And that strikes me as such an interesting change that, of course, in some sense reflects a little bit the culture of Silicon Valley. Do things fast. If things don't quite turn out the way you hoped they would, you can fix it at some other point in time. And I'm curious what you 
make of it? Is this a promising development? Should we be happy about these new models? Do you see issues? What's your take? I started my career in nonprofits. I grew up in the nonprofit arts world. I was a theater director, and then I was an arts administrator at the Metropolitan Opera. And so my default when I'm thinking of philanthropy and nonprofits always has the cultural lens rather uh -huh. than more of a humanitarian or an education lens. Hmm. And so certainly I know the pain in the industry of having to adjust to these different waves of motivations and check writing habits. And in particular, the cultural institutions are really facing friction mm -hmm. with this new crop of millionaires and billionaires yeah. who, for the most part, don't give a crap about opera and ballet and the art museums. And they're really struggling to figure out, are we going to be able to persist in a world where We can't make those calculations of the direct impact of these $50 leads to lives saved or whatnot mm -hmm. in the way that the Gates Foundation or the effective altruists or any of those data-driven Silicon Valley investors are. But I have to be heartened a little bit by Mackenzie and her approach to check writing to say, this is your world. It's not mine. And mm -hmm. you mm -hmm. know yeah. what to do with this money. And so I'm going to trust that if I have done my research and selected you appropriately, that giving you the money to then distribute as you see fit is the best use of your time. I think there is a lot to like, and in particular things that you just have both highlighted. You know, first, the emphasis on cost-benefit analysis and just really thinking hard about where your dollars do the best is just wonderful. And for too long, that was neglected. So you have these websites like GiveWell And even more particularly for those who want to, as you suggested, Felix, give directly to poor people in emerging markets, you have give directly. These are amazing efforts to really think about cost-benefit analysis in a thoughtful way. Yeah, I think it's also great to be giving away money as opposed to storing up money. So for a long time, as you alluded to, Felix, foundations were effectively in the U.S. There's a rule that you have to distribute 5% of the corpus in an annualized basis, which really was not a floor, but it became a ceiling. Yeah, yeah. Which is a way of saying everybody was distributing 5%. And that's absurd. And I think what Mackenzie Scott is doing and that idea of distribution as opposed to housing wealth, I think is fantastic. I think the issue I run into with some of these folks, especially the effective altruists, is first, there's a little bit of a holier-than-thou thing to them, mm -hmm. which is they kind of have got it figured out. And that laser-like focus on cost-benefit analysis obscures lots of things. So it devalues, for example, labor that is used as a volunteer. So according to that logic, you're kind of an idiot for volunteering at a not-for-profit because you should be spending an extra five hours earning your hourly wage at some hedge fund as opposed to doing the volunteering thing. And that, I think, is kind of absurd and just devalues the idea of what work is and what philanthropy is. <laughs> and then the second part is, in that process of being so cost-benefit analysis-oriented, they come to some absurd conclusions. Like, it's better to take some moonshot on saving humanity and looking at space exploration as opposed to thinking about famine today. And that I think is problematic. You can get there with the math, and I understand how you can get there with the math, but it's not really clear that that gives you a fully rounded sense of what philanthropy should be. And to your point, I think the people who lose are, Christina, cultural institutions, which I think of as being really important.
but they'll never get through that calculus. Mm. Felix, what do you make of it all? Yeah, so I agree that I think the way the movement started, I really like this idea of trusting the institutions that know better than you do. And so this idea of really trusting in particular local organizations, which I like even better, and I have started myself to just give the more direct it is, I love the idea of someone somewhere getting cash. And then I think there's a lot of evidence that people do really meaningful things. And the little feedback that you get, what people do with your money. The part that I like the least is what you alluded to me here, which is sort of the Silicon Valley hubris. So now it's not just anymore about cost-benefit calculus. Is it better to support fairly affluent people who go to the opera, or is it better to maybe invest in mosquito nets that really save a life? And of course, those benefit cost calculations are really important. The fringe, the effective altruism, FDX's Bankman Freed, it's actually gone away from poverty. Mm. It's gone in, I think, what sometimes is typical for Silicon Valley. Oh, now we worry about the long-term future of humanity. And we are the people who know what the future looks like enough to do calculations on what we need to do today that say, I don't know, synthetic biology is not going to be a problem or AI is not going to be a problem. you got to be kidding me. You have no idea what's going to happen two months from now. And the idea that that's a smart way of giving away. That's the hubris part speaking, which unfortunately it undermines so much of what I actually liked about the changes in philanthropy. Right. This inability to also recognize the externalities of the choices you're making when you're saying, I'm going to make the most possible money. I'm going to go work for a hedge fund or I'm going to go and build Amazon. There are real costs of the businesses that make tons of money, whether that is Amazon's workers having to pee in bottles on the side of the road, Walmart's workers having to go and be fed at food banks because they're not making enough money, people relying on Medicaid. If you are trying to make the most possible money so you can give it away, where is the reckoning of the impact of the businesses that are making all of this money who might be creating the very issues you then are going to solve. And there's another piece to it. You're highlighting the potential externalities of those career paths that yield those large amounts that you would intend to give away. The other part of it is it looks at work and one's labor in such a narrow way. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Get the highest wage possible so you can give away the most. Mm -hmm. Well, fine, but then let's ask ourselves who we become after 20 years making the highest wage possible <laughs> and see if you're happy with who that person is. Now, you might yeah. say, well, yeah, but I gave away X percentage of it over time. First off, just to be clear, I think sometimes people rationalize entry into those fields in that way and then never live up to quite the level of those promises <laughs> because it becomes harder and harder to do so. But then it's also like you become a different person. And if you become a different person, that is something that you really have to think about philosophically. So this kind of tight demarcation of like, I do work, but it doesn't really matter what I do. It's just the highest wage possible so that I can do this other thing that I want to do. That's always a faulty logic, including when you apply it to philanthropy, because your work is who you are at some level. And so that also strikes me as deeply wrong about this movement. And to your point, here on like volunteering and the impact that both you can have 
in a very non-monetary sense, but also the impact that that work can have on you Yeah, in a very real sense. There's a human element on this on both sides. This is not just a mathematical translation of value from one group to another. Mm-hmm. And this is where kind of arts and culture come back in. I, you can absolutely argue that you should be giving money to mosquito nets and not to the wealthy people at the Metropolitan Opera. But at some point you say, well, what is the point of a world without art? What is the point of mm-hmm. humanity without culture that there's a real need to invest in and care about the expression and the storytelling and the creativity that comes from these things that will never win if it is between them and saving someone's life. But without them, what is the point of life? I have to say that's the part that I'm most conflicted. Me too. Because the logic of not supporting the opera and getting those mosquito nets is so compelling. It's so strong. And at the same time, I love opera. And I don't want it to go away. And I know that for reasons we talked about on the show earlier, that the kind of cultural activities, they will become more and more expensive relative to everything else because you can't have the kinds of productivity gains in the arts that you have in the rest of the economy. That is such a hard thing to think about because your argument makes so much sense and I don't want to live in a world where there's no opera. And then the simple calculation that sometimes effective altruists make is for the donation that you have just given to Metropolitan Opera, what good could you do elsewhere in the world? Right. I don't really know exactly how to think about that. I think part of the answer is, of course, there's another possibility, which is the state. I think these cultural institutions arguably belong to the state and they should be funded as public goods are funded. So if you think about them as public goods, which should be funded, then we would do that with tax dollars and we would do that in a way that we fund all kinds of things. And for whatever reason in the US, especially not as much in Europe, we've settled on a philanthropic model of funding culture, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't need to be that way. It happens to have actually done very well in the U.S., meaning we have great cultural institutions because of that model. But maybe where we're heading is a place where public funding for the arts becomes more dominant. Does that make things any better or does that make it worse? (laughs) (laughs) Certainly we have seen that model succeed in Europe and elsewhere where a history of longstanding public investment in the arts and culture has proven to be successful. Do I believe in this particular political climate that that is ever going to happen? No. (laughs) And I think equally so, there's the concern around free expression. And if the state is funding the art, do they get a say in what sort of art gets funded? Absolutely. I go back to Felix's question of like, is it opera or mosquito nets? And I think the answer for me, at least, is both. Mm -hmm, I mm -hmm. just have to choose that... If these are both things that I care deeply about, that I need to make space in my budget and in my life for supporting both and making the case for both, not one at the expense of the other, that maybe that's the false dichotomy and that it needs to be something that we consider a both and approach. Mm -hmm. That's great. So, Christina, recommendations. What do you have for us? Well, on the topic of arts and culture, and I will admit I am 100% biased because I am an investor in this, but the Broadway production of Parade that just opened 
is spectacular. And if you can't get to New York, then they have just released a cast recording of it. So if you are into Broadway musicals, it is worth checking out. The score is by Jason Robert Brown, who is one of my favorite composers. The production, if you're not familiar with the story, it's a true story of a man named Leo Frank in Marietta, Georgia in 1913, who was accused of murdering this little girl, falsely accused. He's Jewish. There was a rise of anti-Semitism, and he was Mm. very quickly convicted of it. And when the governor stepped in to commute the conviction because the evidence wasn't there, a mob broke in and lynched him. So it is unfortunately a little bit topical. Actually, there were neo-Nazis protesting on the first night of performances outside of the theater. But it sounds super depressing, but I will tell you, it's a beautiful show and a really, really lovely production. And the cast recording is spectacular. So Parade. That's my recommendation. Wow. That's wonderful. It doesn't sound like the plot of a musical, I got to tell you. It doesn't. And it was originally written in like the mid-1990s, so kind of out of left field. It won the Tony when it first came out. It was well-received, but kind of short-lived. And this particular revival just seems to be striking a nerve and really hitting the zeitgeist. Fantastic. That's fantastic. Felix, what do you got? I have two recommendations for today. One actually is related to the bonus episode that we just did. A few of our listeners sent notes asking about ways to find out how much coverage you have. And of course, the broad rule is $250,000 of cash. But then, as always with financial rules, if you start looking at the details, it's actually very, very complicated. So my recommendation is the FDIC has a calculator that allows you to describe the kinds of accounts that you have, how many beneficiaries do you have, all the kinds of things that influence how much protection you have. And the calculator is actually done really, really well. Hmm. And it will tell you in maybe five minutes or so whether you are fully insured or whether you should maybe thinking about rearranging your finances a little bit. So that's my first recommendation. And the second recommendation has to do with what we talked about today. And it's an article by Alex Lazaroff that appeared in HBR, I think maybe a year or two years ago. And it has a funny title, Think Like Camels, Not Like Unicorns. And it's a really interesting idea related to startups. So in the US, obviously, we have a fabulous ecosystem, in particular when it comes to financing startups. It's now a little more stingy than it used to be, but it's still a fabulous ecosystem. And the article describes how founders elsewhere who live in places where this kind of ecosystem doesn't exist, how they think about entrepreneurial choices. And he goes through a whole set of choices that just look very different if you're outside a very generous funding system. And the argument is, in particular for times like these, this is actually how you want to think about your startup. Don't think like, I'm going to build a unicorn. Think I'm a camel. And a camel can exist for very long periods of time without much water. So Mm. for instance, pricing. Use pricing not first and foremost as a way to stimulate demand by basically not charging anyone. Think of pricing as communicating the competitive position of your product. That maybe it's a premium product. Maybe it's a product that has a really interesting structure to the price. And so there's lots of advice like that. So it's a piece by Alex Lazaroff, Think Like Camels, Not Like Unicorns. 
That sounds great. Yeah. All right. Well, since you didn't choose between two, I'm not going to choose between the two that I was going to bring. And I'm just going <laughs> to give both. You never do me here. Yeah, I know. But now I have an excuse not to. <laughs> now you're making sound like it's a novelty. Exactly. <laughs> I'm only doing it because you did it, Felix. So the first one is very trivial, but I have just yet again, for maybe the 10th or 15th time in my adult life, rediscovered pomegranate. Oh, It's the best. Yeah. It is the best. I can eat it by the bowlful and... I am also convinced it's a superfood, which I'm sure is not true, but <laughs> any opportunity to begin the day with a bowl full of pomegranate, I will do if it's high quality and good pomegranate. And the second is a little more of the arts and culture, uh, Christina, in your direction, which is I recently on a plane saw a movie that was nominated this year, and I had not seen, I think, any other movies really, or just one or two of the movies nominated. But I just loved it. Now, of course, it was a plane movie. So, you know, the bar is low. So, you never really know <laughs> about your taste during a yes, plane movie. Yeah. But I saw The Banshees of Inisherin, oh. which is this uh, Martin McDonough movie. Yes. I have to tell you, it was spectacular. I just loved it. It's almost beautiful in an unrealistic way. So, it's almost like a folktale. But it is a story of a friendship between two men that has gone awry. And it's hilarious. I mean, laugh out loud, funny at different points in time. And then it turns haunting and mm -hmm. super interesting. Mm -hmm. If you have that vision in your mind of a green Irish coast, this will satisfy you to no end. And then it is truly funny. The acting is spectacular. The writing is spectacular. And then it's actually really serious as well. So The Banshees of Inisherin by Martin McDonough is my other pick. Wonderful. Hmm. And this is it for tonight. Thank you everyone for listening. This was After Hours from the TED Audio Collective.